This was recorded live at Trinity Church in San Juan, Puerto Rico. For more information, go to trinitypr.org. We are uh, in Zechariah for our sermon series. We're going to be in Zechariah chapter 7. Zechariah is an Old Testament prophet, and he comes kind of near the end of the Old Testament, and we've been in him for a number of weeks now in, in the, book, in his, the, the book that he wrote. And as he has described to us time and time again, we've gotten some crazy visions uh, in the last six chapters. Now, the vision that follows today is a little bit more normal, um, a little less fantastic in that sense, and yet just as profound in its meaning. But before we really dive into the text, I had another Bible story I wanted to bring up as a way to kind of intro this passage. I wonder if you've ever heard of the story of Cain and Abel. Uh, Most of you are probably pretty familiar with it. It's found in Genesis 4, very early on in the Bible. So most of us who start those Bible in a year programs uh, at the January 1, and you know, we get about four days in, we get to this story. And then we might get a couple more weeks, and then we're like, man, Leviticus is hard, and we close it, and you know, we get lost in the middle. Uh, I'm guilty of the very same things. Don't don't think I'm, I'm above this. So Uh, But in Genesis 4, the story that we have read so many times over again, Cain and Abel, uh, here's what happens. I'm just going to read a little bit for you. Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. Now, this is kind of a fascinating and horrifying story, if we're being perfectly honest. Because we don't get a lot of details in this passage. Why did God have regard for Abel's offering? Why not for Cain's? And I'm sure we have some speculations that we have built around the text somehow. Uh, And some of those are warranted and they have some grounds, but the fact of the matter is that Genesis 4 doesn't really tell us. It doesn't really tell us why God accepted one man's offering and not the other. Now, if you know the rest of this story, God's regard for Abel's offering over Cain's would cause Cain to feel some shame, and instead of running to God with his shame, he takes matters into his own hands, and he murders his brother Abel. As much as I would like to study that passage with you all this morning, we're actually going to be in Zechariah, like I mentioned. (laughs) And the question that I think Zechariah helps us answer this morning is what kind of worship, what kind of offering God accepts. Because I think one of the most uh, horrifying things for us could be that we feel that we lived an entire Christian life and we got to the end of the life and we got to the pearly gates and you would find out that God had no regard for it. That your worship was fake, that it was hollow. And that's what we read about in Zechariah today. So if you would, please stand for the reading of God's Word. This comes from Zechariah chapter 7. Zechariah chapter 7. In the fourth year of King Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah on the fourth day of the ninth month, which is Chislev. Now the people of Bethel had sent Sherezer and Regamelech and their men to entreat the favor of the Lord, saying to the priests of the house of the Lord of hosts and the prophets, 
Should I weep and abstain in the fifth month, as I have done for so many years? Then the word of the Lord of hosts came to me. Say to all the people of the land and the priests, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth month and in the seventh for these 70 years, was it for me that you fasted? And when you eat and when you drink, do you not eat for yourselves and drink for yourselves? Were not these the words the Lord proclaimed by the former prophets when Jerusalem was inhabited and prosperous with her cities around her and the south and the lowland were inhabited? And the word of the Lord came to Zechariah saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, render true judgments, show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor, and let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. But they refused to pay attention and turned a stubborn shoulder and stopped their ears that they might not hear. They made their hearts diamond hard, lest they should hear the law and the words that the Lord of hosts had sent by his spirit through the former prophets. Therefore great anger came from the Lord of hosts. As I called and they would not hear, so they called and I would not hear, says the Lord of hosts. And I scattered them with a whirlwind among the nations that had not known them. Thus the land they left was desolate, so that no one went to and fro, and the pleasant land was made desolate. This ends the reading of God's word. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. May he bless it for you and for me. Please be seated. So I think before uh, we dive into Zechariah, again, I always like to just give a little brief history lesson. If you've been with us through the whole series, then this is probably pretty familiar. However, uh, Israel's story up to the point of Zechariah had involved, you know, King David and all this, and then a civil war. Uh, And then the Assyrians came and conquered the northern kingdom, and then the Babylonians came and they conquered the southern kingdom. And when the Babylonians came, they carried away all the people and tore down Jerusalem and the wall and the temple brick by brick and burned it. And they carried all these people away so that they lived as a subjected people in a foreign land for 70 years. During the 70 years, the Babylonians were defeated by the Persians. And the Persian king, wanting to win some allies, uh, allowed some of these subjected people to go back to their homeland and even sent them with some goods to help restore the cities that had been torn down by the Babylonians. And so there were some people in Zechariah's day who, these were kind of the first groups coming back into Jerusalem. Now this vision that we were we're, were reading this morning came two years after some of our earlier ones, if if we do the math on the dates And so what this means is, when I was talking earlier about them kind of questioning whether or not they should lay the foundations of the temple, whether or not they should start rebuilding the temple out of fear, whether or not God's anger was over with or not, uh, now they have already started. And in fact, they had already constructed the foundations of the altar. And worship services, in some sense, were happening again in Jerusalem, even though the building was not yet completed. So they're two years into this essentially four-and-a-half-year construction project. And in some sense, there's almost hope. And so there's this contingent in our passage that comes down from the city of Bethel. And they come and they ask a question. Can we be done with this fast? Can we be done with with this fast? After all, they were gone for 70 long years. God was finally permitting them to rebuild the temple. Can we be done with this fast? Now, to understand why they were asking about this fast, the Old Testament really only prescribes one fast, and that's the Day of Atonement. The rest of them are uh, added a little bit later, so when you, or, or kind of volitional or in a time that people, people of God kind of decide to do them. Um, so during the exilic time, this time where they were conquered by the Babylonians and carried off, they instituted 
four primary fasts that all the people followed. And, and here they are. There was one on the ninth day of the fourth month to mourn when the walls of the city were breached. There was a fast on the 18th day of the fifth month, and they mourned the burning of the city and its temple. And this is the one that this contingent is asking about. Can we be done with this fast? Because we're rebuilding the temple in the city. The third is, on the, uh, is in the seventh, on the third day of the seventh month, they mourned the murder of their then governor, Gedaliah. God actually mentions this one in verse 5. I haven't quite gotten there yet, but he mentions it again uh, if you look ahead there in the seventh month. And then there was a fourth one on the tenth day of the tenth month. They mourned the day that Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, set up his siege around the city. So these were the four fasts that they had uh, been observing for 70 years. Uh, probably, you've got to think about this, right? 70 years. As long as many of these people that are coming have been alive. These people that are traveling have saying, I have observed this fast my entire life, but this fast is for a particular purpose. It's because the temple was torn down. Can we be done with it? In some sense, they are asking if their worship over these last 70 years has finally been acceptable to God. Are we done with this fast now? You're letting us rebuild this temple. Things are going well. Should I weep and abstain in the fifth month as I have done for so many years? They believed that the obligation of fasting should be over because things seemed to be going their way. Surely this, surely this aspect of worship is no longer necessary because God is accepting our worship because good things are happening. I think we actually embrace the same mindset a lot. Good things are happening, Lord. Can I be done with this obligation of worship that I've been giving you for so many years? Do I still need to do this? Is there ever a time where you start to think, I've probably done enough worship? Surely God must be satisfied? Have you ever spiritually journeyed into the throne room of God, kind of with your head held high and wondered, God, you know, it appears that since things are going my way, you must be pretty satisfied with my behavior. So all that morning Bible reading, all that prayer, all that devotion to you, surely you don't need that at the same level anymore, right? I can, I can rope that back down to just a couple hours on Sunday morning. Here's God's answer to the delegation in verse 5. Say to all the people of the land and the priests, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth month and in the seventh for these 70 years, was it for me that you fasted? There's this phenomenon in the Hebrew language, uh, which is what the Old Testament was written in. Uh, and it occurs because writing something down was very expensive. Like to make a scroll, it's not like you know, we have paper today and just pencils and all the things they had, right? To, to get the, the scroll that would last hundreds of years and to guard it in a temple means you had to have like a stable nation state that could protect it, a place to guard it where it wouldn't be exposed to the elements, and also the process to be able to make it. And so what you see with a lot of these very old languages is that they were very economic. For instance, Hebrew, although it has vowels when it's pronounced, does not write them down. Kind of like if you're in Wheel of Fortune and the word's kind of done, but you haven't bought any vowels yet, and your brain's like, I know what it is. It's kind of like that, except they do it just with their whole language. To save space. They could fit more on a page. So when they choose not to save space, when they do something counter that logic, it stands out to us. And what we find in this passage, this, this verse 5, is that there's two unnecessarily repeated words. And in English, it's hard to see, 
but it's fasting and me. Fasting and me. Roughly, it would be like saying this in English. The fasting that you fasted, was it for me like really for me? When this happens in Hebrew, we recognize that the stress, the emphasis of what God is trying to point to in his words is enormous. That aspect of worship, was it really for me? Now, of course, I think we still see this in our English translations. I don't think it's lost in there, but I think it's just a little bit easier to see in the Hebrew. There's a lot of emphasis on these words. All of that religiosity that you religioned, was it for me or was it for you? All that worship that you worshiped, all that fasting that you fasted, all that tithing that you tithed, all of that showing up to Bible studies, all of that being there, thinking that uh, this process, was it so that you might improve yourself or was it for me? Was it so that you might improve your own estate so that you might have some bargaining chip with me or was it for me? God says a very similar thing in Amos, and it's it's a little bit more uh, familiar passage to some of us. Amos is another Old Testament prophet. He says this, I hate, I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. In the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Everything they thought that they were doing in worship was unacceptable. And maybe like Cain and like us, we're wondering, how can our worship be acceptable? And the good news is, is that God doesn't leave his people in Zechariah without an answer. And so we get to learn from this as well. And we're going to see as we study this passage that in order to worship God in an acceptable manner... We need to study his word, and those who worship his word from the heart have a particular sort of evidence in their life. So these are going to be our two points. So first, the study of his word. If you would look at verse 7, God continues, Were not these the words that the Lord proclaimed by the former prophets, when Jerusalem was inhabited and prosperous, with her cities around her, and the south and the lowlands were inhabited? We're not exactly sure uh, if God is referring to all of the former prophets before Zechariah or if he's referring to one in particular. But regardless, what he's trying to say is, I've already told you what worship should look like, what worship I find acceptable. Have you listened to it? Or did you bring your own? I think a lot of times we want to believe that God is going to accept whatever objects of worship we want to bring to him. And God is not a hard God um, or, or curmudgeonly in that sense. He's not um, refusing the things that we bring to him uh, in good faith. But a lot of times I think we are under the impression that he is pleased uh, with our performance up here. With our performance in Bible studies, with our performance in our tithing and our giving, with our uh, performance on, on short-term mission trips. Thank you, Crossroads, for being here. I'm not calling you out. I know you just happen to be here, so... Um, Crossroads from Cincinnati is here helping out Hunger Corps. Uh, we're, we're thankful to have them. A similar phenomenon kind of happens in Jesus' day. 
um, Jesus is critiquing their religion. So they're, they're bringing a certain sort of religion, and they're saying, uh, we've actually vetted this. This is what God accepts. And Jesus is like, nah. He accepts something different. And so Jesus tells this parable in Luke 16. It's a fascinating parable about a rich man and a poor man, and they both die. And the rich man, although he's been blessed uh, in his life, ends up in the place of torment, which we would kind of call hell. Uh, but the poor man ends up in heaven in the arms of Abraham. And in this kind of parable, there's a chasm, and you can kind of see across it, but it's, it's uncrossable. And so this rich man is calling out to Abraham uh, from the place of torment, and he asks for mercy. And Abraham says, I cannot, for there's this great chasm that's fixed between us. And so the rich man cries out again, and he says, then have a mercy on my five brothers who are still living and warn them so that they don't have to come to this place. And do you know what in that parable of Jesus Abraham responded to him. He said, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. In Jesus' logic in telling the story, not even his own resurrection would be sufficient evidence if we didn't want to hear the words of Moses and the former prophets. Do you know what the Old Testament says about acceptable worship? Or do we kind of cast it off because we're in the New Testament? Because I've got news for you. Even though Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament, he didn't negate the Old Testament. And if you think about what it means when God speaks something, it means that he means it and it's always true. It can't just be true for a time. It can't be just true for a place. But it's true always. Now, to be sure, we have questions about specific laws and case laws about how they apply to Israel and today, considering we don't have a theocracy. Um, We're in the United States, you know, 3,000 years later. And so we have to do due diligence sometimes in applying these things to our lives, but that doesn't mean that they were false. It doesn't mean that we can't learn something about the kind of worship that God accepts. God has told us in his word what sort of worship he accepts, but we like to believe that we should bring to him whatever we want. We're just like the Israelites who, in verse 11, refused to pay attention to the former prophets. They turned a stubborn shoulder. They stopped their ears so that they may not hear. They made their hearts diamond hard, lest they should hear the law and the words that came from the Lord of hosts that it sent by his spirit to the former prophets. Therefore, great anger came from the Lord of hosts. In order for our worship to be acceptable... First and foremost, we have to hear the call that all of God's word is informative for us and that it's serious, (laughs) that God tells us in his word what he wants. So if God tells us in his word what he wants, what does he want? And that's our second point. There's a particular evidence in the Christian life uh, that we see for people who truly worship from the heart. First of all, they have a deep respect for God's word. But second of all, certain evidences come out. Look at verses 9 and 10. Thus says the Lord of hosts, render true judgment, show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor, and let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. Real worship that's about God is informed by God's word. And the evidence that you are truly worshiping according to God's word is that you render true judgment that you show kindness and mercy, that you do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor, and that you do not devise evil in your hearts. That's what true worship looks like. 
Real worship means that we don't just see worship as happening in the church on Sunday morning. Although a particular kind of worship happens here right now among us, worship never stops for true worshipers. It encompasses their whole life. Now, I'm not saying that God is advocating uh, for open borders or zero immigration policies, but when Christians, real, true, worshiping Christians, talk about sojourners or aliens or strangers or immigrants, they do so without oppressing, in kindness and mercy, rendering true judgments, which means they're unwilling to use the misleading rhetoric of towing a party line in order to malign fellow image bearers. However we discuss uh, social policies in the public sphere, true worshipers have an evidence at the kind of life that they live. I wonder whether you took a a quick look at the last conversations where you got really passionate. Because I think it'll probably reveal to you what you truly worship. And maybe to turn the question here is, when you got really passionate, when you got really worked up, when when you were going after it, was it God you were worshiping? Was it really for God? How would you know? Did you do it from arguments from his word or by regurgitating the rhetoric of talking heads? Are the fruits of the Spirit evidenced in your life? Are you going on much like you have your entire life? Are you devising evil against your fellow humans in your heart? It's probably not true worship. I think with any amount of reflection on how serious we're supposed to take God's word, or any amount of reflection on the type of evidences that we're supposed to have in our lives, we find that we fall very, very short. So is the message of the Bible that we can't bring any worship that's acceptable to God? Well, in some sense, that is true. (laughs) There's nothing by our own power that we can bring before God, and he goes, wow, thank you. I've always needed that. Needs none of it. But that's not entirely the whole story. And in fact, I'd like to go back to Cain and Abel because the Bible later in the New Testament helps us understand the story of Cain and Abel a little better. Understand why Abel's sacrifice was really accepted. And it's in Hebrews chapter 11. It says this, By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain's, through which he was commended as righteous. He was commended as righteous by faith. God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. Abel didn't work harder than Cain. And although we might speculate about whether or not Cain gave some sort of generic offering of just kind of like the middle of the road of his produce, whereas uh, Abel went to the fat of the lamb and gave the better sacrifice, the, the thing is, Scripture doesn't make any of that very clear for us, although we might speculate. What Scripture makes absolutely clear is that Abel's offering was made in faith. What was his faith in? Not in his own merit, but in the promises of God. Because if you read the rest of uh, Hebrews chapter 11, you understand that every uh, patriarch in some sense that is mentioned in this passage, all these, this hall of faith as it's sometimes called, is listed time and time again, and all of their faith is in the promises of God, that God could do what they didn't think was possible. 
If you're wondering whether God will accept your worship because of your offerings or because of your worship or because of your tithing or because of how diligent you've been, know that you will always, always be insufficient without faith in the promises of God. And so the invitation of Zechariah 7 is the same for those people as it is for us, to trust in the promises of God. The only difference between them and us is that we see the promises fulfilled, partially, but fulfilled. We see a little bit clearer the glass that was broken, and we know that it was Jesus himself who obeyed God's word from the heart. Jesus himself, who had all the evidence of a true worshiper. And what Jesus said was, what is mine is now yours. And what is yours is now mine. So Jesus suffered the death that we should have died. And we get all the benefits that Christ should receive. The invitation of this passage is to take whatever pride you have in your own works or worship or goodness and to lay it down at the feet of Jesus in faith that he alone is sufficient for you. To recognize that he is the only one who worshiped correctly, that he is the only one whose life showed the evidence that actually pleased the Father when the heavens broke open and he said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. But this invitation is also an invitation to rest in his love. Because what we see in Jesus uh, is not a, a cold and distant God who is waiting for, all, for, all, for us to do all of the right things, but a God who comes to us in the midst of our own sin to rescue us. He loves you so much, so much that he would give his life for yours. To take the punishment that is listed at the end of these verses and give you his blessings. So, what does that mean for us right now? (laughs) Is our worship meaningless? Do we have something to offer? In faith, when we take it and we lay it down at the foot of the cross, what we get to receive in those moments is the words that Jesus himself received. So when we bring our feeble worship, again, I'm not calling John out, but our our mistaken chords, (laughs) or our stumbling over words and names, or when things aren't quite right, or when we fail to do that which we've set out to do, which we do over and over again, I'm going to read that Bible in a year, maybe next year. We bring these feeble offerings of worship, not because we work so hard on them or because they're so worthy for the heavenly kingdom, but because Jesus takes them and by his blood washes them clean and offers them. And what we receive in response is the words, well done, my good and faithful servant. So that with Abel, our names might be listed in the book of life and recorded in the hall of faith. Everyone who brought their works to Jesus and said, I believe in you to make them right. Of course, the only way that we hear these words, well done, my good and faithful servant, is because Jesus has definitively, by his body and his blood, removed our iniquities from us, taken them upon himself 
put them to death in the grave, then defeated death himself to be our resurrected king. Here's how another Old Testament prophet says it, Isaiah 53. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. When God came to rescue us and when God was speaking uh, to the people in Zechariah's day, what he was uh, asking for them is not to use their worship of him as a bartering chip, uh, to purchase something. And so I give you the same warning this morning. Don't use any of the aspect of this worship and especially this table as a bartering chip, saying, Lord, I took communion. So how are you supposed to come to this table? You're supposed to come to this table humbly dependent upon the body and blood of Christ alone. The night that Jesus was betrayed, when his disciples rejected him, he took bread and having blessed it, he broke it. And he turned and he gave it to his disciples as I am ministering his name, now give it to you. And Jesus said to them, take this bread and eat it. This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup and after he had blessed it and given thanks, he said to his disciples, this is the cup, this is the, this is the blood of the new covenant which is poured out for you for the remission of the sins of many. Take and drink. This table uh, is the table of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, it is not Zach Lutz's uh, table. It is not the table of the PCA, our denomination. Uh, all those who humbly rely on the body and blood of Christ alone, who have been baptized into his name, this table is for you. Uh, if that's not true, uh, if you are prodded by the Holy Spirit this morning, uh, that you are using uh, your worship and faith as a bartering chip, uh, if you have never united yourself to Jesus uh, in a public proclamation of faith or been brought up into the household, uh, we'd ask you to not partake of this table today. Uh, not because we don't want you here. We would love to have you come back another week. And so I'd invite you to come talk to me or any of our staff about uh, any questions that you might have uh, or how to come to the table in the future. We do our best to do this every single week because it's a proclamation for all of us of how desperately we need Jesus. We need it like we need food. So in a moment, I'm going to pray, and then we can come down the center aisle. We can go to the serving station um, on my right or here. If you require gluten-free, the gluten-free option is that way. Just notify your server as you come up, and they'll make sure that you get the gluten-free one. And then there is red wine and clear grape juice. Uh, please take according to your conscience. Uh, and then if you would, at the end of our service, try to make sure you get the little cups into the trash cans. Uh, that helps because we share a building with our sister church, La Travesia. So it helps keep things clean. So if you would, please pray with me. Holy Spirit, we're ashamed to say that we're not even aware of how desperately we need Jesus. We know we need him, but we're just blissfully unaware of how desperately we need him. We need Jesus like we need food. And so, Holy Spirit, I ask that you would please work faith in us, and that by our faith, our worship might be acceptable. And by our faith, we might actually commune with Christ in this meal, who offers us in this meal his very body and his very blood for spiritual nourishment, for confidence that we are washed clean by it. This we ask in Jesus' name alone. Amen.